Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, September 12, 2012. This is episode 979 of the Survival Podcast. I have a cool guy for you. I'll, I'll have him on in just a moment. His name is uh, Kurt Linville, and uh, he's from a company called 180TAC. And that's TAC, T-A-C-K. Uh, he's uh, located up in the Colorado Rocky Mountains, has a huge amount of experience uh, from backpacking and camping and uh, high peak climbing in the Colorado Rockies. So we'll be talking about things from a wilderness survival angle today, and I think you'll enjoy this show. I think you'll find it not just a break from some of the stuff we talk about all the time, but I think you'll also find it to be kind of unique in all the shows we've ever done on wilderness survival. I was very pleased with the way it came out. I'll have him on in just a moment. Before I do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping make sure the show's for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Uh, uh, today's sponsor of the day number one, Western Botanicals. You know, uh, the big thing about Western Botanicals is being someone who is uh, is so... I, I don't know even the word for what it, what it would be, but I have such an affinity for herbal treatments. I believe that there's times when I need a Western doctor. You know, I need modern medicine. There's things if you know if I get a wreck and there's a yield sign on my spleen, please take me to the ER. If I'm having a heart attack laying on the floor, please take me to the ER. But with chronic conditions and basic things to make the body function optimally, I think that we were given everything that we need uh, by nature in the form of herbology. And when I need something and I don't have it, I can't find it in my backyard or it's not in my uh, pantry or my cupboard or what have you. And I go to Western Botanicals and go, gee, do they have that? Guess what? They always have it. It's always also either organically grown or wild-crafted. So they're my go-to source for herbals. They might want, you might want to make them your go-to source for herbals as well. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. You know, KnifeKits.com is cool because if you are somebody that's been making knives your entire life, like you grew up, your daddy made knives, your granddaddy made knives, you are a master bladesmith, you can go there and get some of the coolest exotic materials, highest quality materials uh, you can think of, and, and you know, hand forge your own blades and things like that. But if you're just getting started and you just want to make something like that's unique and custom to you, you can get a kit, some handle material, some custom bolsters. You can even get yourself a DVD and a book. And with some basic hand tools and a little bit of try it, you know, try it, figure it out, make it happen, you too can learn how to make knives. Isn't that cool that the beginner to the expert and everybody in between can get what they need at KnifeKits.com? Check them out today at KnifeKits.com. Remember Western Botanicals and KnifeKits.com. Both offer special deals for the Member Support Brigade. You'll find those in the benefits area of your Member Support area if you are an MSB member. More on that in a bit. Next up, if you can, please come see me in Hickory, North Carolina. Uh, I've talked about it a lot, so that's all I'm going to say. Uh, Self-Reliance Expo, Friday and Saturday uh, this week, Hickory, North Carolina. Want to see you there. There is a special uh, early meet and greet on Saturday morning. Details have been published. There will be a link again in today's show notes. And I will put out today... Uh, which uh, brew pub we're going to on which night after hours for those of you that want to come have a beer maybe and meet me and some other folks uh, after hours after the show as well. 
Uh, next up, do consider going by tspcopper.com sometime today and checking out some of the cool copper coins we have there for you. Remember, MSB members get 10% off all your purchases, so make sure you log in and get your discount code first. And that will bring me to my last but not least, and that is joining the Member Support Brigade. What is MSB for those that are new to the show? MSB is a program where you can say, I want to support the show. I want to support the Survival Podcast. I want to become a premium member. And you do that, it's about $50 a year unless you get the discount for military, law enforcement, or first responder service. If you are one of those, email me before you join. I'll send you your special discount code. That comes out to $0.20 cents an episode. And for that, you get discounts to about 35 vendors now. And those discounts are the things that you're probably buying for your preparedness and self-sufficiency anyway. And they will pay for your membership cold. You'll also get just a ton of free ebooks valued at almost $200. You get those free the day you join. It's a great deal. You support the show, and you get a good return of investment. That's the way I like to do business. That's what's made Survival Podcast successful. Your continued support will continue to make us successful and help the show continue to evolve. Okay, with that, uh, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up. Let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Um, today, again, I'm going to introduce a gentleman named Kurt Linville. He is the co-owner of 180TAC, LLC. They manufacture stoves, uh, emergency and backpacking stoves. They're really awesome stoves. Uh, but we're only going to talk about that a little bit. We're going to spend most of our time today talking about uh, one of Kurt's real passions, which is wilderness survival, and specifically as it relates to you know the Rocky Mountains, that environment, which is one of the harsher environments, especially in wintertime. He's got a lot of great experience there, and he's here to talk to us about that today. And with that, hey, Kurt, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Jack, I'm glad to be here. It's such an honor. Hey, um, we have you on to talk about, uh, you know, some emergency situations, wilderness survival stuff like that today. Could you give people just a little bit about how you ended up where you're at and, you know, your background and things like that? Sure, Jack. I uh, grew up on a farm in northeastern Oklahoma, and I spent any free time I had out in the woods learning about nature. Just uh, fell in love with it as a kid. And then as a young man, I moved to Colorado and I built a life here. And I've lived in Colorado for about 20 years now. And I've tried really hard to take advantage of what Colorado has to offer with the rugged mountains, the crazy winters, the skiing, backpacking, uh, you name it. I've been doing it and practicing wilderness survival skills now for those 20 years. So I've learned a few things that I'd like to pass on. Maybe we can help some people out. Absolutely awesome, man. Um, you know, with with that, you've got kind of this background down in the south, and then you've been living in a honestly a much more difficult environment to survive in, at least at certain times of the year in the Rockies. And in that time, what what have you determined that is maybe the five or six most critical things you know when it comes to wilderness survival? You know, there there are different approaches to answering this question. And I want to mention it kind of as a caveat for people to think about because each person's situation is unique in how they approach nature. A lot of wilderness survival schools teach things like build a fire, sit down, and get found. Make sure you get rescued. And for someone with limited knowledge about nature and the outdoors and how to uh, be comfortable and how to survive an emergency, that that's Perhaps good advice, but my approach is a little different. Um, my approach is about learning survival skills in advance of an actual emergency and practicing those as a hobby for fun 
to grow closer to nature and understand how nature operates. And then when you find yourself in an emergency, you can work with nature and you may not need to be rescued. So it really empowers the individual for short term and long term um, survival situations. So I, I throw that caveat in there because if you don't know what you're doing, perhaps getting found should be a high priority on your list. But on my list, getting found is not a priority at all because my plan is to not have to be found. Um, you talk a lot in your podcast about personal liberty and being able to take care of yourself. And that's kind of the approach that I take. But that said, it takes practice and knowledge to be able to do that safely. So I think that the number one survival tool in an emergency situation, and I'm going to kind of separate things into short-term and long-term emergencies. Right now, we're going to go with a short-term survival situation um, is your mental attitude. Jack, what do you think might be a reason someone would find themselves in the wilderness and suddenly in trouble? I would say that probably the number one legitimate reason, you know, not being, you know, if the guy's not a knucklehead and went somewhere he didn't know where he was going without a map and a compass or any idea, uh, and, and kind of knows where he's at still and not lost would be injury. So we've, we've hiked out, you know, five miles, which, you know, the guy's in shape and that would normally be no problem. He really even knows which way to go back home and, and really does a number on an ankle or a leg where it's, it's difficult to just go back. That is, I think, probably the, the most common emergency situation that we have. Another one is people that go into an area, they get off trail, they get turned around, they're not sure how to get back again. Um, sometimes that's when people are hiking just for, for the fun of it. Sometimes it's people hunting, that sort of thing. But the bottom line is somehow you've found yourself in a situation where you don't know if you can get back in the schedule you expected, right? And that can be really scary. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've seen, I've been hunting in tree stands and seen grown men that look like they've been in the woods their whole life, uh, turned around and going in circles and, and eventually had to yell to them and let them know there was a road, you know, a hundred yards away. Uh, it's easier, I think, than most people think it is to, for it to happen to you. Well, it's been a lot of years since I've been lost, but it didn't happen to me as a kid. And it's a scary situation to be in. Um, I don't have a natural compass in my head. My son does. And when we hike together, every now and then he'll say, uh, dad, <laughs> and I'll correct our direction. It's real easy to go in circles. That's the point. And that gets even scarier because the light starts to fade. The temperature starts to drop. The weather is doing things it didn't expect. Okay. So you're in a really scary situation. My number one survival tool is a good mental attitude. Um, you've got to stop, assess the situation. Figure out what your plan of action is going to be and then start the kind of self-talk that leads to survival. Um, when people say things such as I can't do this or I could die out here or or I don't know what to do. Then that's when really bad things can start to happen. So the number one thing to me is you stop you assess your situation and you say, wow, this is what I've been preparing for. Right. And you realize that if you work with nature rather than against nature, the nature is going to provide what you need, not only to survive the situation, but maybe even to have a, a good time or at least make a, a lifetime memory. Right. So Absolutely. positive self-talk. That matters a lot. 
and realizing that nature is not necessarily the enemy. Nature can be your salvation. So that's my number one survival tool. And it seems obvious, but it's not. And sometimes when you're out there in those situations and it starts getting scary, you need to talk out loud to yourself. Say, wow, this is going to be a fun challenge. I'm ready for this. Let's figure out what to do. And that kind of self-talk can make a, a world of difference. I completely concur with that. I think that it's important, not just in wilderness survival, but in many of what we would call survival situations. I talk about it all the time where there are people that get into situations, whether it's out in the woods or in the middle of a natural disaster, that when you look back, you can go, that person had every resource that they needed to get out of that and more and just didn't realize it. Oh, yeah. Yep. And that's what's really sad is is all of the stories about people who didn't make it out who were only 100 yards from the car. Okay, so we've got our attitude right. What do we need to worry about next? Well, you mentioned one of the, the number one causes of having an emergency situation in the wilderness might be an injury. And I agree with you. Um, I don't list this as my number two, but I think that having a good understanding of wilderness first aid is really important. And I plan to speak a lot more about that um, a little bit later. But a couple of weeks ago, I took my nephew and my son backpacking, and we hiked over a, a 12,500-foot pass. And we got deep in the woods with our backpacks and spent a weekend. And the reason was to train them on what to do when things don't go right. So all weekend long, I created emergencies. I had a heart attack. I broke my leg. I severed an artery. I had exposure. We had imaginary icy rainstorms. At Man, you had a bad trip. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really bad trip. But they learned what to do in each situation. And at the end of the weekend, I said, so what did you learn? And they said, don't get hurt in the woods. <laughs> That's a really good lesson. In other words, it kind of goes along with the attitude. Think about what you're doing in the woods. Don't get hurt in the first place, right? But yeah, you, as Frank Sharp says when it comes to self-defense, don't do stupid things in stupid, stupid places with stupid people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I tell you what, I've had too many close calls in the woods to think lightly of it. Um, we'll go into more of that a little bit later, but Assuming that we manage to not get hurt, we're going to move on to what I believe is the second um, most important survival tool. And the rest of the survival tools, I take in the order of what will kill you first. Because the most dangerous thing is what you need to address first, so you eliminate that danger, and then you can move on to the other dangers. So the number one threat when you're out in nature is exposure. In the summertime, it's not as much of a threat. A man severe, uh, sunburns, heat stroke, things like that do happen. But in the wintertime or when the seasons are changing, exposure can really knock you off your feet. And um, hypothermia disorients you. It makes you confused so you can't make wise decisions. And once you're into that state of mind, it's not long after that you're dead. So the number one survival tool um, after attitude is how to create shelter for yourself. Um, often people think of shelter, they think of a tent, they think of a sleeping bag, maybe they think about a cave or, or a place under an outcropping of rock or something like that. 
Those are all good thoughts, but what if you have nothing? Um, one tip that I think is just invaluable. The temperature drops by 30 degrees. Maybe it starts to snow. Tuck your pants into your socks. Tuck your shirt into your belt. Find dry, lightweight material and start stuffing your clothes full. Grass, cattail fuzz, whatever you can find. Dry leaves. You want to stuff your clothes full so you look like the Michelin Man. And you will be surprised how quickly that will insulate you against incredibly harsh conditions, even without a coat. So that's the number one quick thing you can do when the weather really comes on strong. Once you've stabilized that, you might want to start thinking about what kind of a shelter can I build if I have to stay here overnight or to wait out this storm? Where do I need to be and what do I need to build so that I can be comfortable and safe? We've got attitude and shelter at this point. Yep. Let's talk briefly about a couple of kinds of shelter. I think one of the easiest to build, but it takes some uh, some practice, is a rubbish hut. And all you do is you get sticks, you lean them up against a, a ridge pole or a log or even a high rock until, you know, you have several sticks stacked maybe two or three inches apart. And then you start piling on insulation. That can be leaves. It can be grass. Anything that's that's handy, even moss, pile it on thick and deep, and then you fill up the interior with a lot more dry insulation, and then you crawl inside of that with leaves piled above and below you. You're dry, you're sheltered from the wind, you're sheltered from the rain. Believe it or not, in a simple rubbish hut like that, you can be comfortable in zero degrees and below. Okay, cool. The second type of shelter is when you can't get to those dry materials because there's snow all over the ground. And snow shelters, no joke, are are really, really warm. Um, I've made a tradition out of going snow caving every winter for the last, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And we've built a variety of different types of snow caves. You need to practice them and understand how they're done to do it successfully. But... Inside of a snow cave with no heat, just body heat alone, the temperature will be in the 50s. And when you're in that snow cave, it could be 20 below outside with 100 mile an hour winds. You won't even hear it. It's just a comfortable place to be. Um, several people in Colorado have survived um, snowmobile uh, mechanical failures, uh, cross-country skiing mishaps, just by building a snow cave. So it's, uh, it's something worth learning. I think that, like, one of the things people really underestimate is the value when it comes to any type of a shelter is making it as small as possible where you'll fit in there. Um, I know that we would build very similar shelters using a shelter half in the military, which are basically carved out of a hole in the ground big enough to lie in and the tarpaulin over top of it. And it was amazing how, I'll tell you what made you realize it is when somebody woke you up at 3.30 in the morning for your shift of guard duty and you had to come out of that hole, how much warmer it was down in that hole. But by having it being small and contained, your body heat's able to do the most work. Uh, so I think that's a big part of it, too. Yeah, very much so. Um, we've had a lot of fun with a big group making big snow caves, and they provide some shelter. But you're right, the small ones are the warm ones. Um, we can go into more detail about snow shelters if we have time later, but one, one point I want to make 
is that they do collapse under the right conditions and you can get so much weight on top of you that you can have difficulty getting out. So it's important to know how to build a shelter that's not going to fall in on you. And the other thing is you have to have a ventilation hole in the top. Poke a hole in that thing. It won't make you cold, but it'll save your life. People go to sleep in snow caves that are completely sealed up and they just run out of air. It does happen. So those two things have to be watched out for. Skills worth learning before the emergency. Absolutely. Um, I think I'm ready to move to the third survival tool. And what would that be? Well, what's going to kill you besides exposure first? And actually, this one is pretty slow, but it's dehydration. Not having enough water can be very dangerous. But the good news is, without a lot of exertion, a person can live without water for about a week. So going without water for a day um, won't necessarily kill you. It's not a good thing to try. <laughs> no. No. And I think it's very situational, too. There's a difference between uh, lack of or very little water when it's 30 degrees out and lack of or very little water when it's 115 degrees out. Yeah, and it can go both ways. What a lot of people don't know is that when you get dehydrated, you can't stay warm. That's true. Very true. So even though you're not sweating, um, it's important to make sure that you have adequate water, um, but you don't have to be in a panic about it. When it comes to exposure, work quickly. When it comes to water, think it through, take your time, and do it right. If you don't have a water filter with you, it's an emergency situation, you may not, then just realize that drinking bad water is more dangerous than the thirst. Um, you want to avoid runoff from roads or industrial areas, runoff from dumps, all the all the obvious contaminated areas. You just don't want to get into water like that. Shouldn't be drinking water that has an odor. And you have to be aware that there are things in water such as Giardia, which I would drink Giardia water in an emergency situation if it got me alive out of the woods. But then I would also be aware that I'd be into six months of a horrible intestinal illness. <laughs> so you want to drink clean water. Um, safe sources of water. That would be finding water at the source, like at a spring. Dew collected with a rag in the morning. Believe it or not, you can get enough water in a little bit of time with a rag to fill up a 16-ounce glass. That might save your skin. Another one is solar stills. And all that's required for a solar still is a large piece of plastic, the ability to dig a hole, and some sort of a cup to put in the bottom of the hole. You lay the plastic over the top and you drop a rock in the middle so it pulls the plastic down to a point above the cup. And if you uh, you pile up rocks and dirt and things around the edge of the plastic, and what you end up with then is a hole, which by nature is probably wet, and a place for sunlight to go in there. As the soils heat up and the evaporation rate takes off, that plastic's going to be cool. The water condenses on the plastic. It runs down to the point over the cup and fills up the cup. Now you have pure water. It's distilled. Um, even in a desert, a setup like this can make enough water for you to survive if you're not too active. Um, interestingly enough, any water that's in the area, you can pour on the ground around your hole. It'll seep in, evaporate, and increase the production of the water in the solar still. You can even urinate around the hole because everything's being distilled anyway. 
And so surprisingly, in a longer-term emergency situation, if there's not good clean water nearby, a solar still can save your life. And what I'll add to that is if you're not in a point where all the green vegetation is dead yet from the winter, a lot of green vegetation in that hole will uh, end up being kind of di- – the moisture will be distilled out of that and increase the uh, the uh, production of the still as well. Absolutely. Wet leaves as well. If you're in a forest where the leaves are wet, you can throw wet leaves in the bottom of the hole even if they're dry. I mean, now, what I've done in situations more to, tra- to test it than out of necessity is take something like a bandana – and tie it to a pant leg and walk through a morning field full of dew, and it's amazing how much water you can pick up that way. Absolutely, yep. There are lots of ways to get a little bit of water, and as long as you can keep some water flowing through your system, um, you can really reduce the effects of dehydration. So it's a critical thing. Um, of course, filtered and boiled water, that's a great thing to do. You can filter water by pouring it through sand until it runs clear, and then if you're able to boil the water, that's even better because you can kill the pathogens that are in the water. Um, a lot of people don't know that you can find a depression in a rock or a depression in a log. You can put water there and then heat dry rocks in a fire, drop them in the water. You'll boil water in a heartbeat just in that depression. So it's possible without even having a pan to boil water and sterilize it out in the field. Absolutely. I completely concur with that. So that brings up an interesting point. Where is where is the ability to make fire on your list? You know, I was waiting for you to ask that. People are often surprised when I start down my list. I put fire down at number five. And I'll explain why when we get there. Okay. But the reason is this. There's a misconception out there that fire will keep you warm. And if you're in exposure and... You're going to have to stay up all night long to keep trying to feed that fire and your backside is freezing and your front side is burning, then it's not an efficient way to stay warm. You're going to end up exhausted, which is not good in a survival situation. I would rather not have the fire and be in that shelter that I made piled under a a stack of leaves where I don't have to work so hard and I can even sleep. So fire is wonderful for keeping someone company. It's good for morale. But I don't count on fire to heat somebody. To stay warm, I think there are better ways. But we'll still get to fire because it is useful for survival. And once again, this is my approach. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm the absolute authority, but this is how I do it. No, that's fair enough. Um, obviously, water purification tablets are great. Collecting water with a rain jacket or a tarp. Any way that you can get water, make sure you do and try to find safe ways to... Uh, Safe sources are ways to make the water safe so you can drink it without fear of getting sick or diarrhea or something like that. So that does it for water. So where do we go from there? Because we're we're one away from fire then. So what's your next one? (laughs) The next one I do is food. Okay. And some people might put fire above food, but I've gone for extended trips without fire at all. And once you get used to it, it's, it's not really that big of a deal. So let's talk about food. People can live for a month or longer without food. So is food high on the priority list? Um, when it comes to survival, it's not that high. But when it comes to being energized and feeling good, we all like to prioritize it. I think that we also need to think about like the ability to think clearly. Because like, when you mentioned 
the first thing is being a positive attitude. Well, if I'm starving, and I don't mean starving like dying, I mean starving like I'm really freaking hungry, my attitude's not very positive. Uh, with exposure, that can affect my attitude because if I'm cold, if I'm miserable, if I'm shivering, even if I'm not in danger of death, that affects my attitude. If I... Uh, if I'm dehydrated, it, it leads to potentially uh, injury and inability to think clearly. So all of these things go back to your number one element of a positive attitude, and I think food definitely feeds into that. And it, it, there's a difference between surviving and being able to think clearly and have the energy to do the things that you need to do. Good point. And in all of these situations, every one of these survival tools, Someone who planned ahead would have things with them so that they could address these situations without, um, you know, having to go to great lengths to do it directly from nature. But I like to say, let's assume the worst case. You didn't plan ahead. I'm not advising that. But let's say you're out there and you're starting to feel hungry and that morale is starting to suffer. You start to feel weak because your blood sugar is down. It will impact your ability to make a clear-headed decision. It doesn't take a lot of food to keep that at bay. You don't have to have Thanksgiving dinner, right, to keep the hunger pains away and, and stay clear-headed. Um, I think that food, perhaps, is one of the most challenging survival skills to learn, and that's because it can be a lifetime-long hobby to become really proficient at edible wild foods. And I'm interested in your thoughts on this, especially in, in winter months in places like Colorado. And maybe it's just from me a lack of experience. But if you put me out in the West Texas desert any time of year, I, I can find more food than I need. If you put me in a jungle, which is where a lot of my time was spent in the military, I don't even care. I mean, I, I, can, I can get fat in a jungle. Uh, and in the eastern woods, I'll do all right, even in the leaner months of the winter. But it seems to me, from my limited experience with, let's call it, the big woods of the Northwest, that uh, winter food finding is a lot more difficult uh, than the other environments I just mentioned. Oh, absolutely. Um, there are enough things that you can kind of hedge off your hunger, but if you don't have a better source for food, then I think it's probably a good idea to be um, in a balanced way, working your way out of the wilderness so you can get to some real food. Um up at altitude, when there are, is, is, you know, 12 or 20 feet of snow on the ground, all the low vegetations that you might be able to eat in the summer, they're just gone. There's not a lot left that's readily accessible, but one that's always there is pine trees. And people like to make jokes about eating bark to survive, but you really can do it, but you have to do it in the right way. But more than that, that depends on the time of the year, but... um Pine trees, their growth buds, the tips on the end of each branch, are often uh, tender enough that you can chew them up and swallow them. Now, the, the pine needles farther down the branch are going to be too tough for that. In a tough situation, you might chew them up, get all the juices out of them, then spit out the fiber because it's just too hard for your body to digest. But what some people don't know is if you can smash up a bunch of pine needles, put them in some hot water and let them steep for a little while, that makes an energy drink that's really effective, full of vitamin C, gives you a little bit of an energy boost. It'll wake you up like a cup of coffee in the morning, and it tastes delicious once you're accustomed to the flavor. I was going to say, yeah, I, I'm not too big on eating pine buds, but pine, pine, pine needle tea is something I do often just for the hell of it because it is pretty good. Now, one other thing that's even better, the pine buds are, are kind of give or take, <laughs> it's the pollen sacs. 
Okay. Springtime, the pollen buds that come out before they go dry, because they go dry when the pollen's getting ready to fly. But before they go dry, they're succulent and they're not real turpentine flavored, just a little bit, but they're, they're juicy. Some people candy them by cooking them in sugars and things like that. But a handful of those straight off the, you know, the end of a, a branch, um, can be very good for staving off hunger. Now, if you tried to live off of that for the long term, it probably would not be sufficient. Sure. But you're, but what we're talking about today is survival, not you know moving out into the woods and living like a hermit and living completely off the land, but getting through these tough situations so that we can reassess and, and, and get ourselves out of them. Right, and that's the kind of food I'm talking about. I mean, remember, we're talking about 20 feet of snow here. On the right time of the year, you can get pine nuts out of pine cones by heating them in fire and they'll open up and pull those out. It's a lot of work. If you have a lot of time, you might get a handful of nuts that way. Um, for a survival situation when time is of the essence, it just takes a lot of time and a lot of work. You can peel bark off of a pine tree. You take the inner soft bark. You can dry it and grind it into flour and bake bread out of it. The Native Americans used to do a lot of that. Just be careful. Don't cut the bark all the way around the tree because you will kill it if you do. But you can borrow some of the bark from a tree. The tree will live and you can survive. That inner layer, you can chew on it while it's wet, fresh from the tree. And once again, it's not high energy, but you do get nutrition out of it. You can stave off hunger and give yourself that little morale boost that you're looking for. Now, in the eastern woods or the jungle or even the the desert, uh, trapping pays huge dividends, and I, I imagine it wouldn't with 20 feet of snow on the ground, but again, for, forgive my lack of experience in, in your neck of the woods, uh, how valuable of a skill is that uh, in, in, in that area? How much, you know, because traps are not, I don't care that they Canterbury caught a boar on, on TV, it's not generally for larger games. Smaller animals are ideal for trapping Ground squirrels uh, in the desert, you can make real simple little traps for scorpions, and they're actually quite nutritious. What what type of trapping insight do you have from kind of, the again, like the big woods, the big sky area? You know, I talk about game as more of a long-term survival situation. Um, you can spend so much energy trying to catch an animal that the amount of energy you get back isn't worth the effort. Sure. But if you can trap, like you say, you can set a trap um, and walk away, work on other things that are going to benefit you and come back. You might just have dinner. So that's, that's a low effort way to uh, catch animals. Um, I like fish traps. They're not too hard to, to make out of things that you might have at hand. And you can catch food pretty easily just by leaving some fish traps in the right place. Snares along um, game trails can also be very effective for small game. In Colorado, uh, snowshoe hare, uh, things like foxes, um, there are even all sorts of animals in the marten family that are out and about during the wintertime. They're up on top of the snow moving around. So you can use snares and things like that to capture those. And uh, don't expect that you're going to run fast enough to grab one, though. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I gave up running after rabbits when I was about six years old. <laughs> well, you would think in the deep snow. There was one time that I saw the snow so soft and so deep that the deer almost couldn't move. Okay. But that said, neither could I. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Without a really good a really good set of snowshoes, the animals always have the advantage there. So I think that game is is certainly something we're thinking about. If you're going to be there long enough for it to matter, if you're just trying to get through a 24 or 36 hour period, I would probably say I would rather you know make some pine needle tea and eat a few um, pollen sacks off the pines and move on. But during the summer, let's let's not forget about the summer season. Cattail roots mm-hmm. they treated a lot like a potato. Dandelions, you know all about this. The dandelion yeah. greens are good raw. They're great cooked into a stew, some sort of a pot herb. The flowers, full of sweet energy. Um, dandelions are one of the most available and best sources of wild food in my mind. Um, in Colorado here, there's a lot of fireweed. If you know how to identify it and prepare it, you can treat it a lot like an asparagus. How about curly dock? That's up here yeah. in Colorado as, ba- as well as Arkansas where you are. Have you yeah, had we dock? have that everywhere. Have you eaten dock? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I love the flavor. It's my favorite. It's it's a great green. I mean, we we use it right in with salads. Um, it's yeah. It cooks it cooks up really well and raw. It has a nice tart flavor. One of my other favorites is thistles. Okay. If you knock the the thorns off the thistle and open up the stem on the inside, there's a, a softer material that you can chew up and enjoy. And it, it depends on the thistle. Different ones taste different ways, but some of them are kind of a cross between a strawberry and a cucumber. Oh, wow. And really easy to get quite a bit of food out of a thistle. Wild roses. Um, you can eat the, the flowers themselves and, of course, the, the rose hips that grow. Yep. A lot of these things are really fibrous. So the, the idea is that you chew them off, you get all the nutrition out of them you can, and then you usually end up spinning out the fiber. If you're able to cook them down so they're more digestible, like the, like the dock or some other things, the fireweed, then you end up with a nice, soft meal, right? Yep. Um, even grass is edible. And in an emergency situation, you can chew up grass and suck the juices out of it and get enough energy to help yourself along. Um, Especially the base of it. Yep. Avoid grasses that are purple or red. Um, sometimes that's a sign of a fungus that's on there that's toxic. But good, you know, clean green grass can provide you with energy. It's not the best long-term food, but hey, in an emergency situation, I'll take it. Again, we're not talking about really throwing down with a dinner here. We're talking about getting through a couple days. Sure. If you can put something for your stomach to do, (laughs) put something in your stomach so it's not sitting there growling at you, then your morale comes back and you're able to keep going. Um, Many, many types of flowers are edible, the flowers themselves. But you need to know your flowers first, like any of these things. Learn about wild edible foods years, months in advance. Don't wait for an emergency to try to figure out what's going to give you a stomach cramp and what's not. So, um, One word of caution, I don't do mushrooms. Okay. And if someone wants to do mushrooming, there's a lot of good food in the forest. But I recommend that you find an expert who does mushrooming and has been for many years. Learn from them. I think it's just too easy to make a mistake. Um, this was mushroom. I'll tell you, we we did a lot of mushroom gathering uh, in Pennsylvania when I was a kid, but we would focus on four or five that we knew cold. Right. And that was probably the best thing that I could ever advise anybody to do. 
uh, is to really, if you're going to mess with mushrooms, is to really know what you're messing with and to really have, like, multiple ways of being sure. And if you have any doubt, then whip it out. I mean, that's uh, that'll serve you in the military to know when to salute and, and keep yourself alive with a mushroom. Absolutely. And the deal with a mushroom is there's not a lot of caloric value there anyway. Yeah, there's, there's flavor. Yeah, and I love mushrooms, but you really, I mean, if I'm anywhere where I don't know the local mushrooms, I won't even mess with it. If I'm somewhere where I do know, where I'm dealing with something very easily identified, or if you're dealing with a woody fungus, a woody flat fungus, you're dealing with something that's not going to kill you. So if it's if it's attached to wood and it's a flat, hard fungus, you can eat it. Um Outside of that, you better really know what you're doing. I agree. And, you know, mushrooms are so easy to mistake. I have a funny story about that. When I was first starting wild edible food gathering, I found wild carrots. And my buddy and I thought, wow, look how big this thing is. Man, we could cook that up and have a meal, you know? Yeah. And we took it back to a kitchen where we could really work on it. And we looked in four books. They all said that all but one said we had wild carrots. One book said, hold up, if the stem's not fuzzy and has purple dots, you have hemlock. Mm-hmm. And I learned an important lesson there. Three books would have killed me. That's interesting. And one book saved my life. So the even small amounts of what we had gathered is fatal. Hmm. So that's just a word of advice to people. Most... Wild plants are edible. The vast majority are, if you know how to prepare them. But there are some out there that will just flat out kill you. So know your stuff, make a hobby out of this, and don't trust just one book. And when it comes to mushrooms, find somebody who ate it before you did. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I would uh, I would concur with that highly. Um, so let's we, we hit food pretty hard. So let's go ahead and move on to fire at this point. Yep, fire is number five. Okay, here's what I think fire is for. If you want to be found, if you want to cook food or you want to boil water, then fire is your friend. If you want the fire just for the comfort factor, and believe me, it can really help morale on those long, dark nights, then great, fire is your friend. I don't depend on it for warmth. The only time fire is really good for warmth is when you can contain the heat from the fire in a shelter somehow. So... What do you do with fire? Um, obviously, the easiest way to um, start a fire in the woods is if you have proper source of fire, matches, a lighter, a flint and steel. You can even start fires, of course, with a magnifying glass. Sometimes you can even get a jar of water to refract the sunlight properly, and, and you can start a fire using the water for a magnifying glass. Um, my favorite way to do it, if I have nothing, is the bow and drill. And you're going to have to have some sort of string for the bow, but I find that a boot lace works perfectly. So just a real quick description, and this will not be adequate for someone to build a fire. It takes a lot of practice. But you cut a stick two to three feet long. It's going to have to be over an inch thick. You want to bend that stick so it makes a nice curve, and you're going to tie your boot lace to both ends. Then you're going to cut a straight, very straight stick. It doesn't have to be very long. Six inches to a foot is more than enough. 
and that stick is going to be the drill. Then you want a base plate that is of the same wood as the drill. The reason for that is you're going to try to be building friction by having two materials that are the same density. If you have a hard drill and a soft base plate, you won't get fire. You'll just get sawdust. So you find a base plate. You're going to have to flatten it out somehow, split it, use a knife, and then cut a V in the edge of your base plate. That V is there so that the coal that you're going to build with your bow and drill will have a place to uh, get air and to fall out into your tinder. Then you need to have a depression right at the point of that V. And you can start the depression using a rock or something just to make an indention. But then you can wrap the drill in the bowstring one loop. And then you're going to need a top plate as well. This can be a harder type of wood. It can be a rock. It can be anything that will allow it to freely spin. You need to have a hole in that too to keep your drill in place. And one thing that really helps is to lubricate the top end of your drill. And the best way to do that in the woods is just to rub it across your forehead and through your hair. And just the natural oils that are there will be enough to lubricate that top end. Because you don't want to fire up high. You want the fire down low on your base plate. So then you have a top plate that's holding the drill. You have the bottom of the drill in your notched base plate. You have your boot lace on the bow wrapped one time around your drill and you start going back and forth. This is not as easy as it sounds. You have to be in a squatting position where you can anchor the arm that's holding the drill with the knee, and you have to practice the right amount of pressure and the right amount of speed, but you can create a charcoal, just a tiny little coal, in three minutes, if you know what you're doing. And once you have that coal, you drop it into some tinder, you blow it, and you can get a fire pretty easily. But it takes a lot of practice, and this is not something to do when you're struggling against hypothermia. Absolutely. I do want to ask you a question, though. Assuming that it's dry material and it's a good piece of material for the drill and the baseboard and spindle, in your experience in watching people try to do this and failing, what is the number one reason why they fail? They get tired. <laughs> I'll, I'll add to that. Though. The reason they get tired, my experience has been people build a baseboard that's too thick, and it acts as a heat sink, and it makes it much harder. You'll have a baseboard that's like an inch thick. Yeah, and and to me, that's been the biggest thing. I've seen people like wilderness gatherings and stuff like that, you know, and they build a drill, and, and you look at the baseboard and go, you are working so much harder than you have to. Because if you have a large piece of thick material down there, it's just dissipating that heat much more rapidly. And yeah. that's why they end up tired. <laughs> well, it's a really good idea to experiment with different types of wood, too. Um some wood works so much better than others. You can make smoke with anything, but <laughs> making the charcoal is another story. Yeah, where there's smoke, there's fire does not always hold true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've seen so many people out there making a lot of smoke, and finally they just fall over panting exhausted. So it takes practice, and you need to know the right kind of wood. And regretfully, uh, the wood that we have up here in the mountains isn't the best kind. Yeah. It's done, but it's not the best. So... so what do you think the most critical asset to actually long-term survival is then? Long-term survival. You know, let's say that you've taken care of all these basic needs, right? 
And let, let me preface it by saying the longer you're in an area where um, you're going to be surviving in a long, long-term, a wilderness area, then you have more time to build a better shelter. You have more time to gather food. Now you can do some hunting and trapping, right? And you can make your long-term home out of it. You can build things to be comfortable. You can start making baskets to carry things. You can make snowshoes. You can make chairs to sit in. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on if you have the time. And all of those things can encourage your morale. But let's go back to another situation. What about when society fails us? Okay. Um, now I'm talking about a different kind of survival. I'm talking about the we don't know when the support of society is coming back again. And, you know, I think the most critical asset to long-term survival in that situation might surprise people, but I think it's love. That's an interesting answer. Why do you feel that way? Well, this is a tough one to explain, and it has to do it a lot with my personal philosophy. But there's a reason that we all exist. And what is survival other than continuing to exist? Right. But what's the reason for that? Why, why do we go all the trouble? Now, what's the point of the thing that we call life in the first place? Um, I don't think life is really about competing for fancy cars or bigger houses. And I don't think that life can be found by watching movies or buying expensive toys. But we have those things as distractions right now. But what happens when you don't have that TV set anymore and the economy is such that the toys are gone? Um, what are you going to fall back on? I'm 100% convinced that we exist in this life to learn to love. I think that's the purpose of it all. I think it's the most rewarding aspect of life and it's the most rewarding aspect of continuing to exist, which is survival, right? I agree, and I think it, it also comes down to the fact that we are community people, community organisms, if you want to call it that. We exist to exist together, and if we didn't, there'd be a lot more hermits in the world. I mean, there are a few people that I don't know what it is that sets them off to go live that way and you know go up into the hills and disappear and live in a cave somewhere for their entire lives and hardly ever see anybody. But that is actually not hard to do if that's what you want. Uh, I think it's hard to do as in hard to actually live that way, but I don't think it's hard mechanically, physically, resource-wise to do. And we don't do that, and that tells us that we intrinsically know we need each other. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I think there are uh, quite a few people out there that think they're going to be able to hole up in the hard times and survive it and take care of themselves. And it's a lot harder than people might think as far as, I mean, how can you have a 24-hour watch when you have to sleep? I mean, those sorts of scenarios are, are there, but there are people that can do it. But then I have to ask a question, why would you want to? And precisely. Precisely. And, and, and if, you, if you're going to do 24-hour watch, and you ain't going to do it forever. I no. mean, we all – the human body will literally begin to break down at about 36 hours of sleep deprivation. If, if you know, going back to military uh, training, if I want to break you, the easiest way I can break you without actually harming you physically or torturing you is to deprive you of sleep. I, I, that, I can get to you quicker that way. 
than just about any other way. Our bodies require that. So at some point, you got to lay down and go to sleep. And if you're alone in a situation where security is highly compromised, you are completely vulnerable. And the longer you wait till you do it, the more vulnerable you become because I've seen people on 30 hours of no sleep. And when they go to sleep, they're out. They're not, you know what I mean, they're not moving. <laughs> yeah, you can't wake them up, which makes yeah. them vulnerable. You know, so that the opposite of that lone wolf mentality is to realize that, hey, community is what makes people survive long term and have a, jo- a life, a joy for life, you know, that's worth surviving for. And I believe that love is the glue that keeps that community together. I think it brings the joy in the hard times. And it's it's not too flippant to say that, you know, a friend halves your sorrows and doubles your joys. We've all heard that before, but that's what it's all about. You know, it can be neighborly love, romantic love, a love for nature, a love for the creator. But love is really what survival is about, in my opinion. It's our core purpose. Now, later, in good times and in bad, love to me is what it's all about. I'm not willing to give that up just because the economy crashes. I'm not willing to give that up just because my uh, habits for this you know, daily life change and get turned upside down. Well, and I think that I, I, my hope is that most other people aren't either. Because I think that's what that's what people say, well, why do you think that it won't be Mad Max or whatever? And and my my view is because even though we might have pockets of that where people just go flipping nuts, in reality, that's what we really are. That I've said almost since the very beginning of the show, that if I took a whole, you know, two, three, four hundred people with various skills and knowledges and whatsoever and stranded them on an island and they had at least enough to make it a few months before they figured out how to use the resources that were there. And I came back in five years, there'd be schools, there'd be new children, there'd be professions, there'd be an organizational structure, there'd be some sort of a government. You could do it with 20 different groups of people and end up with 20 different results in certain ways, but the net result would always be the same, that people would band together and continue. And when people ask me, how do I know that's true? It's well, because it, it's the way it's always been. And then there's this place called Australia where that's kind of how that happened. You yeah. Know what I mean? So like we have these, these, these precedents, both small and large that show this is what people do. And I think without that caring for each other, it, it doesn't happen. You know, I couldn't agree more. And one thing that I want to stress, since you've given me a voice today, start now, folks, start now building that community Make those lifelong friends that will have allegiance for you and you can have allegiance for them. Build up that community. Start sharing tools to save money. You want to get prepared for really hard times? Don't take it on yourself alone. Get a group of people together that can plan what to get that it can be shared and used in common. Plan a community garden. Start having people over to eat a meal at your house. Find out who your neighbors are. You know? That kind of thing that you can do now is, I, I believe, the most important thing for preparing for hard times, and that's what will get you through in the end. I completely agree with that. Uh, in fact, I agree with that 100%. Hey, I got- you know, on that note, I think that it is important to be doing things now. And like One of the things I've always told people is to build your life, and I mean build your homestead, build your family, build your community, build your skill set. And one of the things I always throw in there is, you know, if, if you can, if it's in your, your blood, build some kind of a business, build something that will produce for you when you're not working. And, and you've done that. You have a w- website, 180TAC is, is the company. You have a, a small product offering. You want to tell us a little bit about that? 
you bet. You know, I have a business partner, and he and I realized that life wouldn't always be the same, and sometimes you have to head in a new direction. And that's where our name of our company came from, 180 TAC. We want to do things in a better way. So we provide outdoor products that can help people in good times and bad with a focus on backpacking and emergency situations. And the line of products that we've started out with, we have engineered some natural fuel backpacking slash emergency stoves. And these are stainless steel stoves. They have no hinges, no rivets, no welds, no bolts, no screws. They all go together with an offset tab and slot design that makes a very, very sturdy stove that can handle a heavy load. The firebox on the stove, the cooking area, is the same as your burner at home. However, it collapses down into a case that's only about three inches wide by half inch thick, fits in your back pocket. Um, the large stove, the larger firebox, only weighs 10.4 ounces. And then we have a smaller stove that's about six ounces. These two stoves um, work great in a bug out bag or in a backpack. And the beauty is you don't have to buy fuel because they burn wood. You don't have to carry fuel. You don't have to store fuel. Worry about if you brought enough along or if you have enough in your storage for a long emergency. You can always cook. You just cook with twigs, grass, leaves, that sort of thing. So the stoves pay for themselves just because of the fuel savings. We really believe that in emergency situations, these stoves can save lives because they allow you to cook, to boil that water. It's just a really handy thing to do. So we're trying to make a difference that matters for people. And there's more information about our stoves on 180tac.com. And that's T-A-C-K. You know, I'll tell you the thing that like made me really appreciate the design when I looked at your, your product when you guys first got in touch with me about it was that when it folds up, all of the metal that's exposed to the flame ends up contained. Because I've had a variety of different foldable wood-burning stoves before, and they have pluses and minuses. But once you burn wood against stainless steel or any other metal, you end up with black char. And if you're at a place where you can clean it a little bit, that helps and all. But otherwise, you end up with it all over everything. Or even if it's in a, a pouch or something, it ends up all over there. And the way yours is designed, it basically the external walls become the case. And all of the metal that's heavily charred anyway is going to be inside. And I thought that was really cool. Did it just work out that way or did you all plan it that way? Oh, no, that was by design. You know, it's it seems like a fairly simple um stove, but we actually spent months engineering it. And we tried to take all of that into account. Getting all the smoky parts on the inside was a top priority for us, as well as getting rid of any failure points. That's why it doesn't have those hinges or rivets. It's built to last for years. And a lot of the, the products out there today, you know, they're, they're built to work for a while and then be replaced. But we designed these stoves for sustainability and we wanted them to be dependable for people when they really needed them. Very cool. And, and what do these things cost? The uh, larger stove, our premier stove, the 180 stove, costs $46.95. Okay. And then the lighter, smaller stove, without the large firebox, it's a little bit cooler, but it still cooks very nicely. That stove runs uh, $29.95. Very cool. And, I'll, folks, I'll let you know, I've already hit uh, Kurt up for a discount for the MSB, and you guys will be able to 
uh, get 10% off one of the 180 stoves. Uh, by the time you hear this, it'll be in your member support brigade area. And, and Kurt, I'd like to thank you for, uh, for doing that. Uh, and for basically, I didn't have to hit you up. You offered it up. And, uh, and I appreciate that level of support. And, uh, I think it's a good product. And I think that, uh, specifically MSB members with the discount are getting a great deal. Well, thanks for that. We worked hard to make this a stove that would work. But, you know, Jack, we've been listening to your podcast for a very long time now. And I believe that our goals at 180 TAC are, are really in close alignment with yours. You know, it's, it's about permaculture and sustainability and doing things that work, that make common sense, you know, increasing your individual liberty. So that's what we're all about. So we couldn't be happier to support what you're doing here at the Survival Podcast by uh, putting this offer out, letting people get a break by supporting you. And I think part of what you're doing, and it carries through with your product, is you're big on the whole living close to nature thing and working with it rather than against it. So, like, I watched your video on how that basically you use this thing and leave no scar on the land. Yeah, it, it really is important. Um, we recommend that if people are using the stove without an ash pan, that they push a little soil to the side. They do their cooking. It only takes a few twigs. It doesn't leave much ash whatsoever. And then once you douse everything out really well, you cover it back up again. There's no scar. But to take it the next step, we also offer ash pans as an accessory to the stove. And the ash pan is a two-piece ash pan that has the same form factor as the stove case. The stove can sit in it, and then you can cook without leaving behind the residue on the ground without burning up anything. And it's also really good for cooking on snow. Here in Colorado, when we go camping mm. in the wintertime, you got to have it. So those are accessories to the stoves that allow people to be environmentally conscious. And, you know, another part of that environmental stuff is staying away from those toxic fuels. They drip, they leak. The processes to make them are not environmentally friendly. And now you They cost money. <laughs> yeah, they cost money. <laughs> yeah. A, funny, a funny quick story. I had one stove leak inside of a snow cave. And it blew up a puddle, just about took our eyelashes off. Oh, wow. We almost burned to death in a snow cave. You know, that's a situation you don't want to be in. I'm not. You know, for people like me that like to travel, one of the real, like I have a little Optimus Crux that runs on like the butane fuel. Right. And it's a great little stove. But if I want to travel somewhere by air, what I have to do is pack my stove and a little kit that goes with it. When I get on the ground where I'm going, I have to buy a can of fuel. If I don't use it up, I got to give it away to somebody because I can't fly with it. Right. Where a, a stove like that uses wood, whether yours or someone else's, I can get the fuel when I get there, wherever I'm going. There's very few places you're going to be uh, where you're not going to have some kind of material that you can burn. Yep. Very few places I'm going to want to be. I mean, I guess Antarctica, middle of the, middle of like not like the woodsy desert, but like. Something like, you know, the sand desert or something, but I'm not planning on spending a lot of time in those places. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's, you know, I do a fair amount of hiking and camping above tree line, and I've always found plenty of fuel because it's such a small amount, and it's uh, it, it, it can be almost anything that's dry. The main thing, folks, don't start ripping up the tundra and burning up the tundra. <laughs> use an ash pan and use only dry, dead stuff. But that said... I've not had problems finding fuel anywhere. I've used this in the rain. I've used it in the snow. We're just having a lot of fun with it. 
Now, you, to you, uh, beyond just the stove, like it, it seems like just from everything I've read from your site and all, it's really important for us to live with nature and, and work with it rather than against it. Uh, from a survival perspective and an overall stand, uh, understanding of you know sustainable practices, why do you feel that way? You know, that's it's a philosophy of my life. You know, it goes far beyond just survival. It, it's a matter of flowing with with nature. You know, I, I believe that the Creator provided nature for our sustenance, but we get removed from nature. I think that the city life not to uh, speak ill of it, but it's full of distractions and removes people from their source. And that can be confusing. And uh, I spent some years as a teacher. I would take middle school students into the wilderness and uh, try to get them to connect with something besides the concrete and loud music. And, you know, some kids did great in that environment, but I had kids that would come completely unglued once the city distractions were gone. It's because they didn't have a foundation back to their source. And if we learn to operate with nature, I think it just builds a quality into life that's irreplaceable, valuable, helps us to understand what we're really about, and helps us to understand what it means to be sustainable and responsible for taking care of this beautiful planet we live on. And uh, working with nature instead of against it also sets the right attitude. If you know that nature is your friend, and you know how to flow in nature, then uh, you don't have to be scared when an emergency happens. And I, I compare it to, to swimming down a river, flowing with the current and having a great time versus trying to swim against the current. <laughs> you just can't do it. So I believe in living close to nature and practicing these wilderness skills, not just for the sake of an emergency, but more so because how much we get back from the experiences that we have when we're when we're living close to our source like that, I think that's awesome. And what I kind of what I was thinking of when you were talking about working with versus against there is how that when something's a truth, it's a universal truth. It applies in multiple locations. So when you look at wilderness survival, it's a tenant, right? Work with versus against. It, it, it's it's something that you would hear from a lot of people that do the type of thing that you do. We go over to permaculture, and it's a permaculture principle. And, and we want to, you know, if we want to deal with weeds, we need to, to put something in their place versus try to yank them out. We move over to martial arts, and it's a fundamental of martial arts to use your opponent's energy against him and work with the flow versus against the flow. Uh, and then you just put it in the point of swimming up a river. When something's that universal and spans that many disciplines, you know it's true. If it wasn't, it couldn't do that. Yeah, it's the base principle of life, isn't it? It absolutely is. And that's, what I think, what makes it so powerful. Very, very cool stuff, man. Um, again, your your site is www.180tack.com. I'll spell it out for folks there. And, of course, I'll have a link to it on the show notes as well today. And, man, uh, great interview. Um, I have to say this just to be honest with you, and it's uh, it's not just to, uh, to, to fill your balloon or whatever. Uh, I've had a lot of people on that are from the wilderness survival mindset, and most of them I could do three or four in a row and they'd all sound the same uh, this has been one of the coolest ones we've ever done on this subject and I appreciate you being on here to talk about it today Zach thank you very much that's, that's a real compliment and it's been my pleasure alright folks and with that this has been Jack Spirica today along with Kurt Linville helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't seeing our food these days you know it's on our TVs 
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Yeah.